you know, we've tried with a number of couples uh, to work on other things when there still is ongoing problems with sobriety. And, mm-hmm. and what we find is that the couples continue to go back and hash over all of the mm-hmm. issues that are coming up from that. So we really encourage them, uh, him at least, we're working with men who are struggling right. with this, mm-hmm. to take that so seriously because I know their desire is to restore relationships and to move forward into a better life with each other. Right. And if that really is the vision, then it's like first things first. We've got to nail this addiction and yeah. um, and the truth-telling part, which is actually even more important for a wife to know that she's going to be told the truth from here on forward. Welcome to the Faithful and True Podcast. My name is Aaron Wellman. For anyone who doesn't know who I am, I am um, usually behind the camera on the other side, and Randy's usually in my place. I am the director of social media here at Faithful and True, and also the, the producer of the podcast, and I'm filling in in Randy's shoes, introducing our legacy podcast for today. Randy and a bunch of the other members of our team here at Faithful and True have been at the AACC National Conference the past weekend. And so here I am recording the intro to the Legacy Podcast for today. And this one is featuring Mark and Debbie Laser. It's 12 things couples do who do well. So in other words, what does it look like um, from, from a couple who's doing well in recovery? What does that actually look like? That's what we're going to get into today. So without further ado, here's Mark and Deb Laser. Show 100 today. Uh, Mark, I was waiting for the trumpets to blare. This is uh, a monumental achievement for us, show number 100. And, uh, you know, in honor of that, uh, I don't know where the time has gone, first of all. uh, Time has gone very quickly as we have done one of these shows per week for the past 100 weeks. So we tried to think of what could we do that would be special for our listeners to uh, commemorate show 100. So you reached into your bag of tricks and actually invited a guest that you literally love. Yes, literally love and live with uh, (laughs) my wife. You better hurry and introduce me. Oh, that's that's quicker. People are going, oh, who could that possibly be? No, Debbie is here today. Yes, Debbie Laser is our guest for show 100. Welcome, Debbie. Thanks. It's great to be here to celebrate with you guys. I originally thought that maybe Debbie and I could do a little uh, reminiscing about uh, the history of Faithful and True, but then we decided that that might bore our listeners to death. So we decided to move on and select a topic that uh, she and I have been teaching uh, now for a couple of years or so uh, after our years of experience here at Faithful and True. Uh, And we're going to talk about what couples do uh, who do well. Couples that have experienced the pain of betrayal, the husband's... uh, sexual betrayal, uh, some form of infidelity, and of course, uh, is, is all... Really, you know, give them a lot of ideas of what we've seen work, and at mm-hmm. some point there is going to be a lot of work that they need to commit to, and a team of people that will help them along the way. So um, aside from having official research, this is kind of our anecdotal research, I guess. Yeah, anecdotal meaning it's yeah. uh, our experience of observing hundreds of couples over the last 25 years, really, mm-hmm. and... Uh, and I think partly what you're saying is that uh, our success rate is, is really dependent on 
uh, how hard the couples are willing to work. And uh, we'll, you know, we'll get into that a little bit because we have 12 points that we think are important, 12 things that couples do who do well. And don't you like the number 12? And actually, you know, and I realize there's a second sheet because we came up with several more things. But if we have time to get to them, they, I think they're equally as important. Well, we could do a second show, I we think. Uh, oh. 12 is really, I think, about all we're going to cover. Well, we don't want to overload people either. Okay. But, uh, all right, why don't you start the uh, number one thing. Uh, we could go from back to, to or 12 to 1 like David Letterman mm -hmm. would, but I think we'll just start with number one. All right. Well, one of the things I've noticed for sure as, as we've worked with couples over time is the first and probably most important piece to get to couples work and couples transformation is a commitment to sobriety and ongoing truth telling from a spouse who has broken that trust. And, you know, we've tried with a number of couples uh, to work on other things when there still is ongoing problems with sobriety. And, mm -hmm. and what we find is that the couples continue to go back and hash over all of the mm -hmm. issues that are coming up from that. So we really encourage them, uh, him at least, we're working with men who are struggling right. with this, mm -hmm. to take that so seriously because I know their desire is to restore relationships and to move forward into a better life with each other. Right. And if that really is the vision, then it's like first things first. We've got to nail this addiction and, yeah. um, and the truth-telling part, which is actually even more important for a wife to know that she's going to be told the truth from here on forward. That's right. So in other words, if the husband uh, is not sober, then sobriety becomes the issue that they're struggling with. And mm -hmm. all of our time working with them is going to be spent on talking about what it's going to take to get the husband sober. And if the husband uh, has been kind of what we call chronically relapsing, it kind of takes the wife not only back to zero, but maybe really below zero in terms of her ability to trust. Yes, that's what I find. To a point almost of feeling hopeless about that. Yeah. You know, when there's too much slipping and relapse, uh, you know, at some point it's not a matter of just going back to go for her. Right. I, I, what I find is she told Julie, as well as having a couple's piece. Right. So what that would mean practically is that we, we would each have our place to go in counseling by ourselves. Mm -hmm. And ideally, we would also have support groups or th a therapy group that would also help us to grow a, a safe community for ourselves. So we have right. others that we can go to and lean on when things aren't always working so well in our relationship. And that healthy community is a, is a really important piece of an individual's work. Um, and then, equally important, is a place to go to work on things as a couple and to work on the marriage. And so those three equal pieces we've found um, are important to attend to equally. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes couples spend a long, long time working on their own stuff, so to speak. They go to groups, they're in their own counseling, but they have no place to go to work on the marriage. They don't have a marriage counselor they're working with. Mm -hmm. And we, we definitely see that things start falling apart. It's real easy to practice being somebody different outside of your marriage, but the most difficult place to practice intimacy issues is going to be with a spouse. Yeah, so the three equal pieces uh, we've always said is like the uh, three-legged stool. If uh, one of those pieces is not in place, uh, the stool will fall. You know, back in our early days when we were first getting in recovery, I think, uh, w you know, we often talk about this, that I went to individual counseling, group counseling. Uh, you went to individual counseling, group 
counseling as an individual. And then we went to couples counseling and a couples group. So uh, on any given week in the first year of our recovery, we had about six pieces of therapy mm-hmm. that we were doing. We still, I think, try to remember how we paid for all of that, but uh, I know that's what we did. Any of these pieces I'm just recognizing, we could talk about a lot longer, but uh, let's get to number three. And this is really important uh, for you to talk about uh, specifically, um, although I think it also applies to the uh, to the husbands as well. But uh, go ahead. Uh, what is number three? Number three is what I call closing the door on commitment uh, for the relationship. And I've kind of coined that term, used it in my book, um, Shattered Vows, a while ago, to mean that if we're going to get to this hard work of being brutally honest with one another about a feeling, about feelings, needs, mm-hmm. and thoughts, and so forth, mm-hmm. um, what we know is that at times that will hurt, and it, it may um, create pain in us and in our relationship. And if we're used to dealing with pain by running away, so to speak, or threatening that we'll leave, uh, what what that ends up doing is it's preventing the other person from really being totally honest because they know they don't want you to leave. Right. So by closing the door on commitment, I'm saying that at least for a time, if they're committed to working on this process, we would like to ask them to commit to not threatening divorce um, or leaving the relationship. Mm-hmm. Now, we know that that is not necessarily something someone can commit to forever because mm-hmm. the truth is there are a lot of things that are hinging on whether a person would make a decision to stay. Mm -hmm. But again, we're asking for a period of six months, perhaps ideally a year or so, Mm -hmm. to be fully engaged in a process of recovery with a spouse before a decision would be made to leave. Right. And I think it's also important for the addict, uh, or as we say, the husband, uh, the one who has uh, committed the sexual betrayal, to also make a commitment. I mean, it's part of his actual commitment to sobriety that he's going to uh, close the door on divorce if he's been having affairs or whatever to stop that and certainly also looking at pornography uh, and any other kind of sexual behaviors. And, you know, sobriety is in one way, uh, one of the one of the ways that he's saying that he's closing the door on divorce as well. So number four, uh, I, I can introduce this one. I think... Uh, uh, both of uh, members of the coupleship, the husband and the wife, uh, need to learn how to be safe people. They need to be emotionally, physically, sexually, and spiritually safe. So we could talk, gosh, we could talk a long time about what it means to be safe in all of those categories. But uh, we've had a uh, couple of couples recently who um, do actually get into some kind of physical uh, altercation, uh, you know, hitting each other and so forth. And so, you know, couples need to learn how to refrain from any kind of uh, physical violence. Uh, emotional violence, uh, I think, would be uh, name-calling, blaming, shaming-type statements. Uh, you're a pervert. You're you're a uh, you're an addict. You're whatever you are. Uh, and it's kind of uh, said sometimes loudly, certainly in a demeaning or shaming way. And I think uh, a lot of times uh, in the early days, the wives and their anger are capable of doing some of those kind of things. Well, we find, um, I I think especially the emotional safety piece is one that we're only beginning, I think, as a culture to accept how hurtful it is. And I'm really glad that we are. You know, I think Mm -hmm. we've accepted physical, sexual, Mm -hmm. and and to some extent, uh, spiritual abuse in relationships. But the emotional one is the one that I think we see consistently, even as it plays out in our counseling room, um, where 
The problem with being emotionally unsafe with other people is it creates defensiveness. Mm -hmm. And when someone gets defensive, then they're going to be in a place where they're just interested really kind of autonomically. They don't even know it in terms of taking care of themselves. And that's going to mean either kind of fighting back emotionally or turning a person off and withdrawing and moving away. And so when when a couple is in that place where all, all that's happening is emotional um, abuse is going on or emotional damage is going on between them, then they're also going to be creating defensiveness, which is going to pull them away from each other, and it's going to defeat the very purpose of trying to grow close. Right. So we work a lot. I know we do in my women's groups. I'm sure you do in the men's groups about what it means exactly to be a safe person. We were just discussing this in my group yesterday. Blaming came up, and I think mm-hmm. we were talking specifically of kind of the words we would be using and how that would show up. And right. Women were admitting that when they're so angry and hurt because of betrayal, it's really hard not to want to blame a husband about this and that and the other thing. And we're learning how to have our emotions about things and talk about them from from safe conversation. And that takes a lot of practice because it's not an intuitive thing we do. I think we intuitively want to fight back or Mm -hmm. flee to take care of ourselves. Well, yeah, it's not an uncommon pattern. If uh, the wives are in an angry place and, and kind of uh, fighting, the husbands, uh, being the fact that historically they know they know addiction, you know they're likely to escape and uh, and withdraw and leave or get defensive. And sometimes, in some cases, they fight back. And then now we've got a full fledged fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, sexually, we like to make the relationship safe, particularly in the early days, by uh, uh, taking sexuality out for a time. The Bible talks about it in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, verse 5. So we need to do whatever we can do to uh, help the couples uh, take the toxicity or pressure uh, or demand demanding or whatever it is out of the relationship for a time so that we can help them return to uh, healthy sexuality. And then we get to the spiritual abuse part. And I think uh, uh, when I think of this one, I, I think about... Uh, the accusations that can happen, that how could you be a Christian, uh, how could you have done these things if you are truly uh, a believer and that kind of thing. Uh, there's a lot of shaming statements that come that have you know spiritual damage attached to it. So black and white thinking last night in our Tuesday night men's group, we were talking about kind of black and white shaming spirituality. Most of the men were talking about it in terms of growing up with that, but I think sometimes we see it in the coupleship too where that can be the case. So creating safety, that's one of the things we work on regularly with our couples. And, and yeah. again, I think sometimes I almost make more progress with uh, women individually in our groups where we can practice with other women. Right. Again, because coming in and trying to be safe when you have emotions flowing through you about many things is, a, is the most difficult thing to do in your relationship with the person you're closest to. Yeah. Well, I think we're uh, seeing that these these first four are incredibly important. We've got seven, uh, eight more, and we need to get to them. So uh, number five, we say uh, you need to own your own triggers. Now, a lot of people may or may not understand that. Uh, How would you define a trigger, first of all? Well, I would define a trigger as just an emotional reaction to something that's going on in your life, whether it's a something you're seeing or hearing or watching. Mm -hmm. Um, But the way you know you're triggered is that you have emotional reaction. And that's the easiest way that I I like to define it. A trigger is really a stimuli or stimulus uh, or stimuli that that 
it takes you to an emotional place and it could be a dark place a depressed place an anxious place or whatever so when we say own your own trigger that simply means that uh, i talk about my triggers from uh, my perception of how they are affecting me uh, if i get into blaming that someone else caused me to feel a certain way that's not owning my own triggers i think also we have an assumption i think many of us that if we're married to someone we know really well or we have a friend who we've you know shared life with for a long time that we yeah. we know each other so well that we can kind of read each other's minds or right. we can watch each other's facial expressions mm-hmm. and kind of know what they need and what they might be thinking and feeling. Right. And I think it's a really dangerous place to get in a relationship because it turns us into I think an expectation of being a mind reader for another person. And the truth is, no one, none of us really have the capacity to do that for someone else. I had a woman last night in group, in fact, who said her husband was really angry with her this week because he was clearly upset about something, and he he expected her to know that he was and to also know what, what he needed so that he right. could be in a better place. Um, that would be a dangerous situation, in our opinion, in terms of helping a couple grow closer. Right. What we would long for is for him to be able to talk about what's going on, what happened, what is he feeling, mm-hmm. uh, what's the meanings he's making out of things, what does he need. Um, when we get clear about those things with each other, then we can truly be better servants of each other. And, and we don't need to, to set each other up that if you really cared for me, you would you would know what I need without my even talking about it. Yeah, and I think that if we don't have the ability to own uh, our own trigger, then uh, our partners uh, kind of walk around like they're walking through a, a minefield. They mm-hmm. just don't know when they're going to set us off. Number six, and this is related to number five, uh, because triggers are oftentimes about earlier pain that was created in life. Uh, so in other words, someone does something today that's a kind of a reminder of you know much older hurt, pain, and woundedness. So number six says we both, both the husband and the wife, need to heal any personal trauma that they've experienced, particularly, you know, the early life stuff growing up in their families, right? And this is kind of a big category, and this is what takes some time in counseling, I think, is to really Mm -hmm. explore your life. And what we believe here is that no one has grown up in a perfect family or in a perfect life situation um, mm-hmm. we're all broken in some extent we right. we are raised by broken people and life isn't perfect but we do want to learn how it's impacted us and mm-hmm. how some of the ways that we've watched life or lived life with others has led us to do the things we do as an adult and that's really um, the beauty of understanding our story better in that mm-hmm. we we can own that with a partner and know that for for some things in our life, we're going to be more triggered about things because of the kinds of experiences we've had in our past. So we all have those things. And what we find is that couples who are willing to look at that and explore their life mm-hmm. are much more able to bring those experiences to personal relationship and to include them in stories we share with each other about why we do what we do. Yeah. So we we have a couple's uh, workshop starting tomorrow, and uh, we're going to spend a lot of time on this one, uh, and really um, a lot of what we've already been talking about in the first six. We've got six more to go, so we need to kind of boogie. Boogie is a radio okay. term for move <laughs> along. Uh, number seven, we need to be companions. Uh, what do you, What does that mean to you? Well, I think ideally it means that we would get back into that place of being allies with each other, you know, I, I know we were all in that place when we first met, and 
we fell in love and we were allies. You know, I'm for you. I have your back. You're for me. You have my back. And we really believe that. And I know that's hard to get to that place when either or both of you have been so hurt by things in the relationship. But in a perfect world, we're, we're going to help couples figure out how it is on this journey. They actually have a lot of things in common. Um, there are a lot of things, even though their hurts may be different, they still have many things that can draw them together on this journey to be right. companions and to know they're for each other. Well, actually, I, you know, I, I see how these things are building on each other. I think one of the ways to be companions is to uh, both own your own triggers, understand your own personal history, share your own personal history. I know a lot of times in our early days, as you were able to talk about stories from your growing up, and I'm able to talk about stories from my growing up. That's one of the ways we become companions on the journey of healing. Rather than saying, you caused all my pain or whatever, that uh, a lot of my pain is much older even than this relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, number eight, um, this is a, a interesting one and a complicated one, but we need to talk about it quickly. Then that is that if either the husband or the wife or both have some kind of diagnosable mental health disorder like depression, ADHD, anxiety, OCD, Um, mood instability or by even uh, bipolar disorder some of the main ones we think about you know if you're if you're struggling with untreated mental health issues it's going to be really hard for you to be in a relationship and I think there is some longing that if we bring one of these into a relationship our spouse will be able to take care of us about that or make compromises for it but truly if we're going to move forward as a couple we're both responsible for our physical emotional and spiritual health, and those are things that are part of our own program. That's right. Well, number nine, I'm just looking at it, and boy, I, I would say we could spend a whole show talking about this, and maybe we should. You know, after 100 shows, maybe we could get into some of this more specifically down the road. But number nine is uh, uh, couples that do well find a spiritual journey together, and they have times uh, when they go to church together, when they maybe read uh, spiritual books together, where they do devotions together or pray together, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, I think it's one of the the deepest, if not the deepest form of intimacy. And and because of that, it's one of the ones I think historically a lot of our couples have a hard time doing. And I would say a part of the spiritual journey is finding meaning for your coupleship. Right. Um, You know, I think for couples that look to why why is it that God brought them together? How is it that he wants them to serve in the world out right. of their coupleship? Right. And the ones that find significance in that place, I think, are the ones that can learn to also overcome adversity in the relationship, which is going to be a given in any of ours. Yeah, I was just thinking of one of our couples who is uh, kind of exploring now. They're both highly successful, but they're exploring the possibility of uh, uh, changing professions, even getting perhaps into one of the helping professions, and it's really kind of a joy to see. But I think basically what we're saying there is that uh, healthy couples that do well uh, do have a vision and a, and a, uh, a purpose and a plan and understand God's uh, call upon themselves, not just as individuals, but also as a couple. Uh, number 10, well, this is going to step on some toes, I think, out there in the good old evangelical Christian community, but uh, we are to serve our partners, not submit to them. Can you... No, I thought I'd let you talk about this one. <laughs> yeah, we neither one of us like it because it's the one we run into trouble out there because the whole idea of submission uh, is, is mentioned in scriptures, but I think the Greek words there actually are talking about serving and also somewhat serving sacrificially. But uh, 
I think this is one where we were talking earlier about being safe. This is one I know for husbands where they have spiritually abused their wives, thinking that the the wives need to submit to them in all things, including sexual things. Well, needless to say, I think this is one of those where an entire show or month or something could be spent (laughs) talking about this because uh, we can get hung up on definitions of words. But I do think ultimately what we're talking about here is is we work on ourselves to become a strong individual that we we can choose to give and serve one another out of that place of completeness not out of need and sometimes i think submission has ended up being interpreted by women as something they have to do for another person because they won't be okay if something hasn't been given to them so it's a different place of relationship i think where Rather than egalitarian type of relationship, we we have kind of a one-up, one-down relationship, if that makes sense. Hierarchical relationship where the husband's up and the wife's down or vice versa. Boy, you know, I do think this is worthy of a whole show. Uh, Number 11, this seems like an obvious point, uh, they are willing to work on healthy sexuality. And that may mean even uh, seeing specialists who do sex therapy in the Christian community. Uh, we have a couple right now who's working their way um, by themselves on a on a book on sexual healing, and uh, we recognize that a lot of our couples do have some sexual dysfunctions or you know patterns of sexuality that are not healthy, and uh, they they commit to working on healthy sexuality as they move forward. So basically, we're we're trying to work with couples to let sexuality, healthy sexuality, be an expression of their emotional and spiritual connectedness. Um, What we find for a lot of the couples that come to us is the reverse has been true. Sexuality has been used as a way of trying to create that connectedness. And for many couples might be the only way they spend significant time together in in a vulnerable way. That's right. So um, I think the heart's desire when we watch them react to what we define as healthy sexuality is always a kind of a relief, I think, especially for wives, because they know that's what they have longed for. And they just haven't been able to figure out why that hasn't felt like that in their relationship. Well, number 12 uh, is uh, where we'll end today, and that is, uh, this is kind of an important spiritual principle, really, I think, and that is we need to surrender living with a perfect spouse. Now, when we're in in the infatuation stage of relationship, like in the first few weeks, months, or even a year or two, I think we all believe that we found the absolutely perfect person, and then that moment comes when the honeymoon is over, and we figure out that we're not married to the perfect person, and then we... We wind up uh, feeling that our expectations have been violated, and that leads to all kind of anger and resentment. So I think it's a spiritual act to say that, no, God has provided us with the uh, the perfect partner for us, the perfect companion for us, but they may not be a perfect person. And I think the truth is, if, if there was such a thing as a perfect person, uh, we would probably have no need for God in our life and our faith journey. Yeah. And um, something bigger and more powerful and more complete for us in our lives than than a spouse that we've married. So right. um, it's, a, it's a great thing to think about, and it's a tough one because I think, as you said, when we meet our prince or princess charming, yeah. we believe that uh, they will be everything we ever need for all things in life. Yeah. Well, um I'm not just saying this to be saying this to conclude the radio show, but uh, I thank God every day for giving you to me as a spouse. (laughs) And I know you're not perfect, but we are in the uh, most deepest of spiritual ways right for each other. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) we have a mission to reach out to other couples. That's one of our visions. I would say this, Randy, I don't know as we conclude today. 
we've mentioned several times, maybe we could spend more time on either uh, any of these points. Uh, let me just invite the uh, listeners, if they would like to uh, give us some feedback, if that would be helpful to some of them. I know there's couples out there that are listening to us. If they would like to hear more about this, uh, just send us an email. You've been listening to the Faithful and True podcast, this legacy podcast with Mark and Debbie Laser outlining 12 things couples do who do well in recovery. If you'd like to learn more about what we offer here at Faithful and True, whether it's our workshops for men and women or couples, our individual counseling with wives who are struggling with um, betrayal or men who are struggling with sex addiction and porn addiction, feel free to reach out to us at our website at faithfulandtrue.com. We have a lot of other podcasts available there and a lot more information about everything else that we offer. Until next time, have a great rest of your week.